Hey, everyone. We've got a really terrific episode for you. Our guests are Alex Shahidi and Damien Basirier, co-chief investment officers at $20 billion LA-based RIA Evoke Advisors. If you're at all interested in how to construct resilient portfolios that can weather all economic and market conditions and keep your clients from making the typical and very expensive behavioral mistakes, then stay tuned. This is Raise Your Average. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Welcome, everyone. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-hosts today are Adam Butler and Rodrigo Gordillo from Resolve Asset Management, SEZC. Our very special guests are Alex Shahidi, Managing Partner and Co-Chief Investment Officer at Evoke Advisors, and Damien Basserier, also Managing Partner and Co-Chief Investment Officer at Evoke. Evoke is a $20 billion registered investment advisor based in LA. Alex, Damien, welcome to Raise Your Average. Thanks nice for to see us. you. Excited to uh, talk to you today. It's, uh, as Adam was saying before, it's a very uh, timely conversation. I think I think to kick things off, it would make sense for you to introduce yourselves, talk about your path, how you've ended up working together, how you two, how the two of you met, where you where your beginnings were, how you got started in the industry. Sure. Uh, well, we're happy to be here. Uh, I, my career started at Merrill Lynch in the late '90s, at the peak of the internet bubble. So that was a fun time to start. You know, the first three years of my career, the market fell fifty percent. And uh, so that teaches you some things about downside protection right off the bat, uh, which was, was actually is really good uh, perspective to have uh, starting your career. Um, so I was I was at Merrill for 15 years, and uh, and while I was there, I managed portfolios. I think a little bit differently from most people. Um, I, I viewed myself as a uh, independent advisor that just happened to be working at a brokerage firm. Uh, so I try to give advice in, in the most objective way that I thought made sense. Uh, so I didn't really use Merrill Lynch products. I didn't use their research. I didn't even use their custody uh, for, for the most part because I found you know better solutions for clients outside of the firm. And the firm is very open with you know working in that regard. So that, so I did that for 15 years. While I was there, uh, we discovered Bridgewater Associates. Uh, largest hedge fund in the world, and and I got to learn about the risk parity framework. Um, so I I spent a couple of years researching it, uh, wrote a book about it um, the, with with Bridgewater's help. They helped provide the data, provided feedback. Um, you know, great partnership there, and and that's also where I met Damien, and and he and I have been talking about working together for a long time. Uh, I'll, I'll let him uh, share uh, his perspective. Uh, but in 2014, it was time uh, to leave Merrill and and start our start my own firm along with Damien. And the idea there was uh, we needed more tools in our toolkit to help clients achieve you know reasonable returns with with controlled risk in what we viewed as a you know challenging market environment for the next decade or two. And, and so left Merrill Lynch, uh, was able to transition a lot of clients, and, and we launched our firm in 2014. And then fast forward to, to last year, we merged with another firm, Evoke, uh, Evoke Advisors, and we're kind of taking on their name. And um, 
And the reason for that is, it's again, it's a, a group of people I've known for, for about 15 years. They work with me at Merrill. We've been talking about working together for, for a decade and a half. And finally, the stars aligned and it made sense to, to partner. Uh, so I'll stop there and let uh, Damien jump in. Thanks. Um, so I spent most of my career at Bridgewater, uh, first in the research group, and then I ended up working with clients. Uh, one thing that was unique about Bridgewater is we took investment professionals and we put them in the seats of managing client relationships. And the reason why Bridgewater did that, it, it was really a philosophical orientation towards build, building client relationships. Uh, we want it to be more than a return stream to clients and really help them across the broad spectrum of strategic challenges they faced. So things like portfolio construction, you know, what do I do about my liabilities? How do I build a hedge fund portfolio? All, all, all nature of strategic questions were things that I was, I was essentially tasked with working with endowment and pension plan CIOs on these types of questions. And I really enjoyed that consultative aspect of my job, so much so that I've now dedicated my career to, to that challenge, which is really thinking about how do you combine return streams to produce the best outcomes for, for a, a variety of different investors. And uh, one of those uh, investors that I worked with, one of those clients that I worked with was Alex. So Alex had built a really successful business, uh, probably the largest institutional consulting practice at Merrill Lynch. Um, and most importantly, Alex was one of our most sophisticated clients. You know, he, he wrote a book on asset allocation. Um, I think he, he just, he has a very good informed perspective on investing based on his own independent view of how things should work, uh, ultimately, um, a function of the research that he's done. And that, that I think is the right way to approach the advisory business. Frankly, one of the reasons why Bridgewater was so involved with providing advice to our clients was that most advisors are more salespeople than they are actual investment professionals. And so Alex just stood out to me as, as doing it the right way. And so when I, for personal reasons, decided to move back to California, I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, I, I talked to Alex. I said, Hey, you know, I'm making the move. And he said, great, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's start a business together. And we've been talking about it for a number of years. And so we made that a reality in 2014. Thanks. That was great. And we've had a chance to correspond quite a bit, Alex and I, over the years. And um, I think we sort of, uh, um, our paths are a little bit parallel in terms of sort of how to think about um, diversity and balance and, and forming this risk parity concept. And, and all of obviously all of us kind of um, informed by the original writing from from Bridgewater, which was really neat. And it's, it's one of these things where um, their whole all weather risk parity concept, where once you internalize it, it's really hard to to look at any other um, <laughs> core investment approach uh, as being even mildly coherent, right? So I, I just I wonder if maybe you can um, describe a little because because there's a lot of different sort of ways to execute or implement risk parity. I mean, obviously, all weather is it one way. You guys do it. Um, your way and, and we've got our implementations. There are other big funds out there that do this. Maybe let's start with um, maybe a discussion about what all of these risk parity or all weather type funds have in common. What is What are the core fundamental beliefs that, that underlie the, this approach? So I think there there's one fundamental aspect that is in common across all of these strategies, which is that all assets provide a risk premium relative to cash. 
So when you take risk, the fundamental underpinnings of a capitalist system dictate that you need to be compensated to take risk, to, to take your money out of the safety of your bank account. And whether that's treasury bonds, uh, as, as, as maligned as an asset class as that is, you know, there is a premium there relative to cash. If you look at longer data treasuries, there are interest rates that are in excess of cash. Uh, equities, various types of credit, uh, uh, there, 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 are, um, th- there is a very understandable compensation you get from investing in, a, in, in different asset classes. And risk parity is the idea that um, the traditional approach is primarily concentrated in one asset, which is equities. And so you're not getting much diversification from those other types of risk premia. Specifically, you know, bonds are, are, the, are the most commonly held asset outside of equities. If you look at the traditional 60-40 approach, that 40% is in low-duration, low-risk bonds, which don't move much. And so the volatility of the portfolio is overwhelmingly driven by one asset and, and over, overwhelmingly dependent on favorable environments for that one asset. Risk parity is um, the understanding that you can actually derive an attractive return from a variety of different assets. It does require you to adjust some of those assets. So for instance, treasury bonds come prepackaged in lower risk forms. That's how most people think of them. But you can actually hold treasury bonds with longer duration or add some leverage, and you can make them look from a return of risk perspective much more similar to equities. And when you do that, you unlock uh, the potential for much greater diversification because now you can be agnostic in terms of return because you can basically hold assets at a similar level of return and risk. And then you can really focus on diversifying, finding risk premia that have very different exposure or biases to different economic outcomes. And that's really powerful. You can, you can basically create something that is you know, 50 to 75% more efficient than an equity-dominated 60-40 portfolio from the perspective of how much return relative to risk you can earn. One of the, one of the ways that we like to articulate the all-weather framework is in the context of what drives asset price returns. And Alex, I really think your book, um, it's called Balanced Risk, if I recall. Balanced uh, Asset Allocation. Balanced yeah. Asset Allocation. How to Profit in Any Economic Climate. Right. It's a great title. Uh, yeah, agreed. Um, does a great job of highlighting how um, sustained asset price moves are generally driven by um, changes in expectations along the dimensions of growth and inflation, right? And um, so maybe dig into that concept a little bit and and maybe describe how some of the different um, asset class types that are typically held in risk parity portfolios are fundamentally designed to react in different ways to these to these fundamental um, economic drivers. I love the title of your book because, um, you know, balanced asset allocation is, is a term that's commonly used in the industry. But what you define as balanced asset allocation and what most advisors define as balanced asset allocation are two very different things. And so, so, um, and the idea, of course, I think everybody's interested in the idea of how to profit in any economic climate. Uh, but how do you, so how do you approach balance? How do you do that? And, and uh, how do you view it? I mean, how does it work in your, in your view? 
Well, let, let me start with a quick story. Uh, so this was probably seven, eight years ago. I was having lunch with a retired portfolio manager who his portfolio was called, it was called uh, Balanced. Uh, it was the name of the firm, which will go unnamed, uh, Balanced Fund. And, and we were having lunch. He managed it for 30 years. And, and I said, well, let me ask you a simple question. I said, why do you call it a balanced fund if it's not balanced? And he said, well, what do you mean? That it's 60-40. It is balanced. Everybody knows that. I said, well, if it's, if it's balanced, then why is it you know, high 90% correlated to equities? He said, no, that's not possible. I said, oh, it is. You know, 60-40 is like 98% correlated to equities over, you could look at over any long time frame. He said, that's not possible. That if, if that's the case, it's not balanced. I said, well, let me explain why. And I walked him through just two minutes of why it's highly correlated. And he said, I, I don't believe you. I said, go home, pull up your Excel spreadsheet and call me tomorrow and tell me what you find. And he called the next day. He said, I'm so embarrassed. He said, I, I managed this balanced portfolio for 30 years. I didn't realize that it was highly correlated to equities. The name is, is misplaced. And this is unbelievable that nobody has figured this out. I said, well, some people have figured it out, but most have not. And so that was an eye-opener. And he was a successful manager for 30 years managing you know, a balanced fund. So, so that goes to your point, Pierre, that, that this is really unknown by the majority of people, even professionals in the industry. Because I think most people, uh, are they, they start with, they, they don't start from point A, where they, where they um, are re- redesigning or recreating uh, re- uh, the foundations. They start by at point D or E, which is the point that everybody else starts, which is the assumptions that are pre-existing in the markets. And, and I think to be a very thoughtful, independent investor, which I think is critical, you can't just assume what everybody else believes to be true to be true without testing yourself. So in some ways, you're recreating the wheel, even though you're taught from an early age, don't do that. I think in investing, that's uh, it's, it's mandatory. Um, so that is, I think, some background as to why this is, it's so different to think this way than, than I think most people, um, you know, the path that most people follow. Um, and I think this discovery early on led us down a very different path. So we don't just take what we hear and assume it's gospel. We, we challenge all the assumptions and we go back to point A and, and figure it out and start over, over and over again until we, we think, you know, we think we have what the right answer is. And then we challenge that again and again and again and again, um, which is how I think you make improvements over time. Um, okay, so going back to, to Adam's question about uh, uh, what true diversification is, the, the, our, our understanding is that asset class returns are by and large driven by the economic environment. And, and, it, and, and to be more specific, it's how the environment transpires versus what was discounted which is really important because if you think about it, if you go and buy stocks, it is the price that you pay for the market is discounting what it thinks the future economic environment is going to look like, both in terms of growth and inflation, which are the two big drivers. So if you think about Q1 of 2020, uh, before that quarter, you know, the market wasn't discounting a global pandemic. It wasn't discounting you know, unemployment quadrupling in a couple months. And so when that actually happened and, and that, that reality was, was starting to become realized, the market fell 33% in five weeks. Like how can, how can the market be that off, you know, to, to fall a third of its value in five weeks because something happened that it was totally unexpected, right? And, you, and so the same thing happened in 2008. You know, most, most people thought 2008 was going to look like 2007 and it looked completely different. 
So, uh, and then if you go back to the 1970s, you know, equities and, and, and bonds underperformed cash for a decade. And it's because you had this spike in inflation that was totally not discounted. So, so by studying market history and, and uh, understanding what is the fundamental driver of, of these asset classes, purely from a mechanical standpoint, it's really how the economic environment transpires relative to what was expected and in terms of growth and inflation. Um, there are other factors, but that, that's the, the majority, especially over longer time frames. So when you're thinking about how to build a diverse portfolio, we think it makes sense to start there, which is pick asset classes that you know are reliably diverse in respect to growth and inflation. So 2000, you know, Q1 of 2020, equities took a huge hit and treasuries were in a bull market at the same time. And that's not a surprise. You know, the treasuries didn't know that the, there was going to be a global pandemic. It just, it's just biased to do well because you get a downside growth surprise, interest rates fall in response, and so treasuries rally. Um, tips and gold did well as well, and that's not a surprise. Uh, and then since then, it's been the opposite. Treasuries have been one of the worst things to own, but equities and commodities have done well. So all of that is very predictable. Not, not when it's going to happen, but when the environment transpires, and depending on how it plays out, you know certain assets are biased to do well or poorly in that environment. So when you pick asset classes, pick the ones that are that you know are going to be diverse. So one of the things that we don't own is credit, for the most part, because it acts like equities. It has the same bias as equities. Um, and so we own equities, but we don't own credit in our in our risk parity fund. And it's because your you know equities are more tax efficient than than credit, and it's more capital efficient. It's more volatile. And, and, and in this case, volatility is actually your friend because that's how you build balance. Um, so we pick asset classes that we know are reliably diverse to different asset, uh, to different economic environments. And then the second step, which Damien referenced earlier, which is really the risk parity part, is you, you equalize the return and risk of all of them. And when you do that, you have, you know, so we have equities, commodities, treasuries, and tips. Uh, and all four are very diverse. You could just look at them through all of time. And then if you structure each to have similar return to risk, now that portfolio is going to be more diverse than just an equity-centric portfolio, and it's going to have a relatively high expected return. And then you just rebalance, and, and you're, you're, you're off to the races. Yeah, you did a great job of sort of describing how asset prices will respond to unexpected changes in the dynamics of growth and inflation and diverse assets are fundamentally designed to react in different ways to, to shifts in these expectations. And then, as you said, sort of, you know, repeated sort of Damien, it's important if you've got diverse assets in the portfolio, but they have fundamentally different ambient risk characters in order for them all to be able to express their unique personality, you've got to hold them in appropriate balance, right? And just to reinforce, if you hold diverse assets in appropriate balance in the portfolio, it expresses the view that all of these different markets um, have approximately the same um, expected risk-adjusted performance over time once you sort of roll through all of the major um, global economic environments that an investor should expect to encounter over um, their inv investment horizon. Um, and that, I think that, that, that that's, those... true. that's true, but it's not necessary for this to make sense. So, so, that's, okay, so uh, dig into that for me. Yeah, this is a common uh, criticism of the approach, which is how on earth could you tell me that treasury bonds, no matter how long duration or, or how levered, have the same return as equities? And you don't have to assume that they do. Uh, I mean, empirically, historically, they have, but you don't have to believe that. You have to believe that they're additive to the portfolio, which is 
not just a function of their return, but also a function of their diversification. And historically, treasury bonds have had a very clear and reliable benefit when, when, when sitting alongside a portfolio of equities. So specifically, you get into an environment like Q1 of 2020 or Q4 of 2008, and it's one of the only assets that is biased to do well in those environments. We often describe it to clients as a hedge that has a positive expected return. And that's really powerful. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to generate the same return as equities. As long as you're in the ballpark, it's not, none of this is very precise. Um, but as long as there's a positive expected return and, um, and that diversification benefit works as we expect, it can be very additive at the portfolio level. And you also get incremental benefit just by smoothing out the ups and downs. So this is something that also I think is not well understood, but you have a portfolio of assets where the individual line items are both volatile and reliably different, meaning lowly correlated to one another. You actually get a portfolio level return that is higher than the average of the underlying components because of the rebalancing benefit that accrues when you're constantly buying something that has been out of favor and selling things that have been in favor that over time, that buying low and selling high practice of just rebalancing in a disciplined way actually generates a higher portfolio level return. So diversification is not just about lowering risk. It actually is incrementally additive to return. And so that's why I said it doesn't depend on this notion that they all give you exactly the same return relative to risk. As long as they're roughly similar, maybe equities do have a higher sharp ratio, even though this has not been the case empirically. But let's say for whatever reason going forward, you, you don't believe treasuries have the same return relative to risk that stocks do. You don't need them to. As long as they're not significantly sort of persistently negative from a return perspective, you're still probably better off when you do the math of having them in your portfolio because they are a hedge to the worst equity environments and they actually pay you something along the way. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I'm just I'm curious because, uh, sorry, I, I was just going to bring up that that you know you, you mentioned the 70s before that it was a, a losing decade for equities and bonds, and and people weren't investing in you know by the time 1980. I'm I just recall the article in Newsweek or the the front cover of Newsweek magazine. Equities are dead, and I'm just curious. You know, it, like. During the 70s, people adapted to the conditions in the 70s. By the time 1981 rolled around, they were fully on board with the 70s. But it was that that's that's really where things turned because almost immediately after the Newsweek article, uh, equities turned, interest rates uh, topped out. And, and then I'm just curious, like it took, how long did it take for investors? Do you have any data on how long it took investors to adjust away from the 70s mindset into what eventually became a 60-40 mindset from the 80s onward? And, and aren't we sort of facing the same kind of problem right now? How long will it take for investors to, to adapt away from 60-40 and to what we're talking about today, which is really balancing for, for a variety of tail risks and, and, uh, unforeseen events like, like, you, you know, you were just talking about Damien about nobody saw COVID coming. If you had, you know, if you were long, long bonds, wonderful, right? 
but for those who weren't, it wasn't such a it wasn't a pretty picture for five weeks. So how how long do you have any data, any thoughts on how long it'll take for investors to break away from the 60, 40, 80s through 20s, 2000s mindset? Um, we don't have, I mean, I don't know if there's hard data cause you know, here's yeah. do it there. I don't know if there's a composite for that, but the, but one thing is for sure is that investors and I think humans in general are backward looking creatures, meaning they look because you don't know what the future returns are. You know what the past returns are. And those numbers are crystallized and advertised. Um, even though you have the warning of, you know, past performance is not indicative of future results. I think that warning is by by you know by and large is ignored. Most people react to what they've seen in the past, both long term and short term, and so so it, I feel that investors are constantly behind the curve because you know they're doing what worked best in the past and and not really thinking about the future. And so, but what happens is it's self reinforcing. So if you just follow the past, you may look good for a while. But, but the key is, is the major inflection point is where you, you get wiped out. And that happens all the time. If you, if you just look at, if you just look at asset class returns by decade, you know, so the 1970s, we talked about treasuries and, and equities, uh, underperformed cash, but gold averaged 30% a year for a decade, right? Commodities were up a lot. And then what happened in the 1980s and 90s for 20 years, equities were the best and gold was negative for, for 20 years. Right. And then you had the 2000s. So I remember in the late 90s, it was all about equities. And, you know, yes, I know the valuations are high, but equities, are, that's where you want your money to be. After what you mentioned, the, you know, the early 80s, it was about the death of equities. Equities are going to be the worst thing now. That was the beginning of the bull market. Then in the, and in the beginning of 2000s, uh, uh, equities looked fantastic and they were negative for a decade. One of the worst decades on record. And few people saw that decade coming because they had just witnessed you know, the greatest bull market in history. And then the 2010s was the opposite. Equities were the best and commodities were the worst, even though commodities were the best in the 2000s. And so you get this flip-flop. And if you think about the next decade, so the 2020s, who knows what's going to be best, right? You, you could you could have equities be the best. Uh, you know, commodities, which were the worst the last 10 years, could be the best the next 10 years, especially with all the printing of money. Gold could be the best. Uh, tips, if you get a stagflationary environment, could be the best especially longer duration, even treasuries, even with, you know, the yields where they are today, if you go into a Japan style deflationary downturn, treasuries might be the thing you want to own, even with low yields. So, so it's just really hard to predict, especially now, if you just think about all the things that are happening, right? The money printing and the zero rates, the, you know, the the, political uncertainty, uh, this this rise of populism, the the wealth wealth inequality, and the and the, and the income gap, all, all those things. These are major forces, and how it nets out is just really hard to know. So so we think I, that being balanced is probably more important today than ever. Yeah. yeah. Um, so j- just to add to what Alex said, and very specifically to answer your question, Pierre, I think investors have already moved on from sixty forty. I have yet to see a 60-40 portfolio where the 40% is in the Barclays aggregate bond index. That 40% is in various fixed income, you know, you know, high yield type of securities. Could be high yield, it could be preferred equities, could be MLPs, could be REITs. All those things now get bucketed as fixed income. And they're actually a lot more like equities than like fixed income. Uh, and then you might have alternatives in those categories, things like private equity, 
which obviously is like equity, uh, private credit, which is like equity, even hedge funds, most of them run very long biased. And so what's happened, I think, is that 60-40 isn't 60-40 anymore. 60-40 is like 80-20. And so investors have actually gotten more levered and more risky over the last decade because that's what's worked. So you know, I actually think 60-40 is dead. It's still called 60-40, but actually it's more like 80-20 or 90-10. And that's a lot of risk that I don't think many investors really appreciate. I think the behaviors changed based on pain points. And so Q1 of last year was a, was too short lived, right? You got this, you got the rebound. Even 08 was too short lived. So a lot of the lessons were lost. So I feel like you have to go through an extended period of pain before the behavior changes. Sorry, Rodrigo. But again, I think the key here is understanding that benefit of diversification and that rebalancing premium. You know, the, the biggest objection happens to be that the, the expected returns to bonds are going to be low. The reality is that the expected returns to everything are going to be low if we believe in that discounted cash flow approach. And if everything is going to remain low, then how do you get at that extra yield? Well, guess what? Diversification offers you that yield. And in, in, in a traditional risk parity setting, you're looking at an extra 1% return if you're rebalancing at a decent frequency, right? So... You just kind of have to stick with asset classes that may be doing poorly in your portfolio in hindsight, right? Things that have recently done poorly, we tend to think, extrapolate and say, well, I got to do less of that and do more of something else. And when you do that, it just turns out that you were looking at, at the past and, and not prepared for the future. You have to buy the things that do poorly, not sell them. Yeah, that's the hardest part. Right. <laughs> Well, this is this was the reason why we created the portfolio. Right. We realized we tried to do this on a bespoke basis in client portfolios, and you can't get very diversified because it all it's it's all great when you go through a period like the first half of last year when the treasuries and the gold were helping a lot. But try holding on to a meaningful position in treasuries and gold when you go through what we just experienced over the last six months. It's impossible. And so, yeah, you're getting, you're getting, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Damien. You're getting all that, all that sort of pressure from FOMO, right? I mean, people are looking at Bitcoin. They're looking at, at, you know, the, the GameStop stories are looking at all the stuff Robinhood's doing with Tesla and, you know, uh, ARC, you know, all the stuff that's going on in, in, in various markets where, where, you know, you feel like you're being left behind or your neighbor talks to you and says, you know, Oh, I got some of that. You know, I've, I've owned some of that ARC, that, that ARC innovation fund. And, you know, it's up like, it's up a hundred percent this year. And, and, uh, what do you own? <laughs> right. And you're, so you get a lot of resistance. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the to the the basics, right? So if you if we were sitting here two hundred years ago, you'd have you know the the best investment philosophy ever is buy low, sell high, right? And that that's hard to do in practice. People want to buy high and sell low, so so it's it's the only industry where where you should uh, you know everybody knows what you're supposed to do, but they can't do it. And then the other thing is this whole you know fear and greed. Right. When something is doing well, you see the lost opportunity and, you know, others, you know, celebrating how well they've done and you want to be on that, on that ride. And, and when, you know, times are tough and you're losing money, you, you want to fix, you want to fix it. You want to do something about it. So th- those emotions drive investor behavior. 
by and large, even sophisticated investors. It's just really hard. You know, sophisticated investors do the same thing, but they justify it better. You know, so it's just it's just really hard to to do it. And and so I don't think I don't think it, it makes sense to say it's irrational and say don't do that. I think it's important to create solutions that that almost protect people from themselves. Um, and that's you know I think what we found is hiding the line items is the best protector of bad decision making. Yeah, hence the portfolio. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you, yeah, you, yeah. you explain what's in there so you're not actually hiding it, but it's that line item risk because because investors are trained to to look at their portfolio and their eyes immediately go to the things in red, right? Because they're, they're always trying to improve their portfolio. So to them, you know, losses are bad. We need to fix it. We have to do something about it. Um, and then And then even if they resist the temptation to sell the things that are down, when it goes on further, they look back and say, I knew I should have sold and I didn't, but now I'm going to take action. Right? That's just a, it's just a natural human reaction, and and so you you just you can't ignore it. You have to learn to to work with it. Well, we've had many conversations, uh, Rod, Adam, and Mike, and I um, about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. And this, so very interesting. It's yeah. it's the toughest thing to do with with uh, especially with retail investors. It's it's the hardest thing to do is to to get them on board with owning things that they don't like or they don't want to like. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the other aspect that's really different from this field versus others is, is a short period of time might be five or 10 years. Everywhere else, five to 10 years is an eternity, right? So that, so you combine those emotional impulses, which are, which are counterproductive on top of the definition of what long and, sh- and short term is. Um, it makes, you know, a very, it makes this, you know, very, very challenging, you know, kind of industry to navigate. So Alex, how do those conversations go with clients as you begin to sort of help them to understand the, this idea that sort of prediction is hard and you, you want to start with the right level of balance and diversity and, and then only really nudge your way into, um, making active decisions when with with great humility and only where you feel like you've got somebody who genuinely has a a meaningful and diverse edge right so an edge that is that is orthogonal to the other bets in the portfolio how do you how do those conversations go do you find and and what are some of the um stories or allegories or or metaphors that you find may be helpful in, in, um, in those conversations to bring them along? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a lifelong process because um, I, I think a lot of it is, is storytelling, and I'll share some. Um, and also there's, a, there's, I think, a mathematical answer to it. Um, and then there's real-life experience. And, and so, so, for example, uh, one of the stories we always share is, you know, some of the, the, the smartest, you know, most experienced, uh, best resourced uh, managers out there might be right 55 or 60 percent of the time. And, and if they're right 55, 60 percent of the time and somebody who knows nothing is going to be right 50 percent of the time, that shows you the range of kind of the best to the worst. And, and that is just not high odds. Um, and, and if you just think about the investors who have been around the longest, there's not that many actually, which is remarkable. You know, so many funds come and go. Um, but the ones that have been around 30, 40 years, 
are the ones who just avoided catastrophic losses. And they did that because they were really well diversified. Um, and, and so, uh, so we, we share stories like that. Um, we remind clients of, you know, how many people predicted Q1 of 2020? How many people predicted 2008? Um, if you just look at, uh, the, the market seers and, and the prognosticators and you just actually, uh, honestly review the record of what they said was going to happen versus what actually happened, you'd find very few, if any, that are consistently right. So what does that tell you? Right. We, we share uh, stories about, you know, the economist uh, surveys of what they, you know, what they predicted the economy is going to look like just 12 months ahead and how off that was from what actually happened. Um, so it's just and then and then the best the best way to make progress in that regard is is when something completely unexpected happens right after that, while it's still fresh, you remind them, look, look what just happened. Who predicted that? Right. And look at the impact it has. And really, you know, you, you, the most important part about investing is just avoiding those big losses. And those big losses always happen when something, you know, like a black swan hits and nobody's expecting. And so, so if you're trying to operate, you know, by a philosophy of what we call crystal ball investing, which is, this is what I think the future holds. Therefore, I'm going to invest in things that will do well in that future environment. If you're wrong about that, and by the way, you're going to be wrong a lot, you're going to take huge hits. And, and so that basically takes us back to our perspective of long-term successful investing is the motto of slow and steady wins the race. Right? You just want to be steady and slow over time rather than riding the roller coaster ride of the markets. That's how you achieve wealth over time. And also that's how you prevent yourself from making bad decisions that will, will compound to reduce your overall returns. So, so it's, 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 Kind of telling that story over and over and over again, and then relating real life examples to help you know uh, crystallize it in their minds. But, but but even then, we recognize that that clients don't have the patience to do something that is totally different from what everybody else does, because the reference point is the market, right? So when somebody says, "How did the market do today?" They're not talking about the bond market or the real estate market. They're talking about the stock market, and so so we recognize that. That, you know, for most people, they can't hold on to slow and steady wins the race over the long run because of FOMO. Because when the market's doing well, they feel like they're up five, but the market's up 10. You know, I could have just bought the S&P. You get those arguments. So we have to, so part of our job is, is uh, economists. Part of it is market strategists and investment, you know, uh, expert, but it's also psychologists. We have to get into the minds of our clients and see what can they actually hold. And we want to try to get as close to what we think is an optimal diversified portfolio as we think they can handle. Because, because ultimately, it's their money. It's not ours. And, and they have the power to, to cut out whenever they want. So we have to figure out how far along Let's that spectrum we can go that is going to be acceptable to them. So I think there's a, yeah, it's you know, bad. anyone who's followed along so, thus far, I think, is, is probably, we get this a lot where we present the, the ideas um, that underlie this idea of all weather or risk parity and people, people are sort of nodding along and it just, it just makes eminent sense. Um, and then it, it, when it sort of gets to the end and, and we're asking them, how would you like to proceed? Then they're, it, you know, it's a press pause because it's just so uncomfortable and different, but I do think it's worthwhile. Um, cause we've been, we've been sort of talking about the moving parts, but we haven't really 
um, landed on what a risk port parity portfolio might look like. Like what is, what do they look like in practice? And, and what are some of the different ways that some of the really big practitioners like Bridgewater or an AQR or, you know, what you guys are doing? How, how do those portfolios look and what are some of the similarities and differences? And, and, and what do those similarities and differences mean to what investors should expect from those products? Uh, so to the similarities, they will all incorporate some mix of equities, sovereign bonds, and inflation hedges. Those inflation hedges could be commodity-related exposures, could be tips. Uh, that's the most typical you know, configuration is, is those three buckets. And then each practitioner will have their own process for arriving at the appropriate weights. Sometimes that's a more dynamic process. So one of the things that actually caused a lot of dispersion last year across risk parity strategies more than normal is that you had this big drop in February and March in, in, in most assets. Actually, every asset for a period of time in March was going down at the same time. And in that environment, volatility spiked. And a lot of these strategies, not all, but a lot of these strategies are very dynamic. So they target a short-term level of volatility. And when you get a big spike in observed volatility, they cut their positions. So they reduce leverage. In some cases, as much as half of the portfolio uh, position sizes were cut. And that happened in the middle of March. In retrospect, at the worst possible time, because subsequent to that, you had a big rally across all of these asset classes. And the the managers that had the most, you know, sort of the shortest time horizon in terms of their volatility targeting cut the most and ended up missing out on the rebound. And so you saw some managers who were flat or even down on the year and some managers uh, like our, our ETF, you were up um, almost 20% on the year. And so it was, a, it was a very big spread. And And the reason why we did on a relative basis better last year is because we approach this more from the perspective that volatility is very hard to time and that we just want to hold a balanced portfolio and we'll size the positions on the basis of very long-term measures of volatility that that are not very influenced by short-term changes. And so we were more or less static through that period in terms of the position sizes. And that benefited our strategy relative to some others that were more dynamic in terms of cutting risk. You know, we didn't really cut our position sizes or they weren't cutting risk. They were cutting their their position sizes in order to target a constant risk. Um, so, so that's one big difference is is the the uh, whether or not the, tar- the the volatility targeting or the sizing of the positions is more dynamic versus more static or longer term in nature. Another big difference would be how they choose the configuration of the portfolio. So, which specific asset classes do they choose, and in what proportion to one another? So we have a, a perspective that growth and inflation are the dominant drivers of relative asset class performance. So we've picked very explicitly four asset classes that have different exposures to different growth and inflation outcomes. So we think about it more from an environmental perspective. Some other managers might think about it more from a line item perspective. So for instance, they might have equal risk to equities and to credit, things like high yield spreads and corporate spreads. That those two exposures, in our view, to Alex's earlier point, 
are not that diversifying. They actually are quite similar in that they do best when you have a strong growth environment and they do worst in a weak growth environment. And so you also saw some dispersion in performance because some some portfolios were more oriented to equities and credit than others. And we, we, we happen to be a little bit less oriented to equities and credit from that perspective because, again, we were focused on the environmental sensitivity of the assets as opposed to just the trying to equal risk weight a number of different asset classes. Um, and, then, and then I'd say the third differentiating aspect is it's more of an implementation question, um, but uh, you can hold these assets in different ways. You can do it through derivatives. You can do it through physical securities. You can do it in ETF. You can do it in a mutual fund. You can do it in a hedge fund. You can do it in a separate account. And we found that the advantages of doing it in an ETF at a low cost are significant. Um, and so we, we've been able to, to gain incremental benefits from a tax efficiency and a cost perspective in an ETF structure that we think is advantageous for our clients versus some of these other approaches, which are heavier in the usage of derivatives, which generate more income that, that's less tax efficient. They're also uh, oftentimes a lot more expensive in terms of the headline fees. Um, so that's the other aspect that I think is a differentiator. Yeah, plus it, it, it also, as you said earlier, it removes that line item behavioral risk, right? Where your your clients are looking at their portfolio and all they see is the red items and instead of the one line, which is which is the ETF or the portfolio and, and they don't get hung up on it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there's one more point there, which is... Um, that I think it's really important to keep it as simple as possible because there is this tendency to try to over-optimize and try to create precision out of, out of inputs that are imprecise. I think you just want to be generally in the ballpark of balanced allocation. Keep it very simple and just own index exposures across the board and then make it very transparent as to what you own and why you own it and why the performance is what it is because it's just a balanced mix of assets. You can just look at the asset class returns and basically figure out how your portfolio is doing. And, and repeating that process over and over again, I think sticks in the minds of investors. And when they understand what they own and why they own it and what the long-term uh, rationale is for a balanced mix, they're much less likely to sell when it's underperforming and actually more likely to buy when it's underperforming. And ultimately, that's what you need to do to achieve you know, attractive returns for clients um, is to prevent them from hurting themselves. Even when you hide the line items, the, the package itself is a lot more palatable than the line items. That's for sure, because it's going to have a you know less volatility. But still, you, it, I think it's really critical for people to know what they own. And so we spend a lot of time and focus in, in clarifying our message, trying to keep it simple, uh, creating you know videos and, and presentations, uh, and repeatedly uh, sharing the same story. Because that is, I think that's really underappreciated. That there's so many funds out there that people just don't really understand what's in there, um, and and I think that's critical. Because when you don't understand something and it's doing poorly, your reaction is going to be to sell it, and that's just not in the best interest of, of investors. Um, which goes back to buy low, sell high, you know, even at a portfolio level. Yeah, you know, there's um, what we've we've obviously done um, a lot of tire kicking on the concept. And one thing that we noticed was that the 
I'll, let's call it sort of a strategic risk parity where you're you're holding the weights relatively constant over time, right? Versus a dynamic risk parity, which is adjusting the weights over time in response to changes in estimated volatility and, and correlations. And what I, th- I think it, it just is important to recognize that there's kind of no universal optimum, right? The strategic approach does better than the dynamic approach in certain environments. For example, V bottoms obviously benefit um, strategic methods and penalize more dynamic methods, whereas sustained um, bear markets like what you sort of experienced in, say, 2008 and another periods like 2000, 2003, that sort of thing, they they tend to favor the, the dynamic method. But what we also observed was that the um, the real juice comes from, from owning a, a bit of both, right? So having some allocation to a strategic risk parity and some to a dynamic risk parity, they actually work nicely together um, to offset some of the path dependencies of, of the risk parity experience. So I think that's a, a neat thing to take away. Yeah. And I, I'm, you know, one of the things that's top of mind in everybody's uh, head right now is that inflation, right? Everybody now thinks because inflation has recently spiked that it now is the thing to, uh, to get ready for. So let's, let's indulge him a little bit and talk about the many types of inflation that can materialize. You, you, uh, Damien, you were discussing how a risk-bearing portfolio has some microsystem bonds and an inflation hedge. Um, what are the many inflation hedges that could be part of a ba- well-balanced portfolio, and how do you see them differ from each other in different inflation scenarios? There are uh, two core types that we hold. Uh, one is commodity exposure, and we hold that through commodity producer equities. So companies that are pulling commodities out of the ground, as well as physical gold bullion. And then uh, there are also inflation index bonds. So these are treasury inflation protected securities. We, we hold U.S. inflation index bonds, but there are actually global options as well to hold. And I know a lot of the strategies hold a mix. Uh, and so when you think about Maybe I should say three categories because you have the industrial commodities, whether you get that through futures or we do it through the producer equities, the gold and the tips. And I think each of them actually have a very different sensitivity to other drivers beyond just inflation. So commodity, uh, industrial commodities are going to be more of a pro-growth asset class. You think about what industrial commodities are, think copper or oil or other types of commodities that the the global economic engine runs on, those are going to be in higher demand and therefore experience upward price pressure in a strong economic environment and vice versa. Whereas gold tends to be more of a weaker growth inflation hedge. So gold tends to do best when you have weaker growth, which is encouraging more monetary inflation or money printing in order to stimulate growth. If you think about gold, it really is a currency more than it is something we use. It's a storehold of wealth. And so in that light, you can compare it to the US dollar or the euro. And uh, so it tends to be a great diversifier against fiat currency devaluation. 
uh, and it tends to do best in environments where fiat currency is paying you zero or negative yields because there's no opportunity cost to holding gold. I've joked, I made this joke the last few years with clients that gold is one of the highest yielding currencies today, which is mind blowing if you think about it because it yields zero. Um, and so, so it tends to do best though in a weaker growth environment. So you've had inflation recently, or at least fears of inflation, and some people are scratching their heads wondering why it is that gold isn't doing better. Partially, it's because you've had tightening liquidity conditions. You've had rising interest rates. So you've had stronger dollar. You, on, the, on the margin, gold as a currency is less attractive than, than the dollar. And, and so you're seeing some headwinds for gold as an asset class as the economic growth improves. I still think longer term that there is a role for gold as a hedge against that monetary inflation, that, that devaluation of fiat currencies that seems likely to come. And then um, tips are a little different in the sense that um, they're the only asset that pays you CPI inflation. They're actually, the interest rate is indexed or, or the, the principal is indexed to CPI inflation. And that's valuable as well because, you know, th that's commonly the, the nature of the inflation that people are most concerned about, which is the cost of, of consuming things. And so that's the one most direct hedge there. It also has a tendency to do best in weaker growth environments uh, because you have falling real yields, which is, uh, you know, something that drives the pricing of tips. Um, and so when you put that all together, if you have a mix of tips and gold for the weaker growth environments, but again, they're both inflation hedges and you have the industrial commodities as a pro-growth inflation hedge, you put those together and you get something that's very balanced to different growth outcomes, very balanced to different types of inflation outcomes. You can get a commodity price spike, which is one type of inflation outcome. You could get monetary inflation because of all this money printing. So currency devaluation, that's a very different type of, uh, of inflation outcome. And so we think by holding all three of those inflation hedges, you get a very nice diversified exposure to different types of inflation in different types of growth environments. And, and Rod, I was, plus you get that boost to the rebalancing premium, right? Yeah, I was just going to add well, one quick thing to what Damien said before Damien jumps in is that there's all this talk about inflation concerns, but nobody owns inflation hedges. You know, they're, they're sitting in portfolios, right? The, the allocation of tips or gold or commodities is tiny, if any, in portfolios. So there, there is a disconnect between the fears that are emerging and what's actually in portfolios. And it's because we haven't had high inflation since the 70s, right? And maybe we don't get it. For, there's a lot of deflationary pressures, but but it's, it's interesting how you're not actually seeing in portfolios, which also goes back to Pierre's earlier point is when do investors, you know, they just, they move very slowly, right? These yeah. shifts occur, you know, at a snail's pace. Yeah, that's yeah, what I... It's that's interesting to see that everybody's go-to inflation as gold and it hasn't been working out for them so, you know, they're raising their heads and they're shaking their heads and raising their hands thinking like, I thought, you know, I was covered for inflation. This is why it's so important to understand, like there's many different types of inflation. Uh, the, co the commodity complex will respond differently, uh, including gold and silver and the like. So it's, it, is, it is much more complicated than people, I think, have expected. Yeah. And you're right. There is their go to is gold. It's still small. And uh, I think there's just this hang up that uh, the people feel like commodities may not have any, any risk premium. Yeah. Um, and that's why they don't want to hold that, it. That's it, part of the reason why we hold the, the equities. Because, you know, if you look at yeah. the equity, the producer equities over long periods of time, there's a very clear risk premium there. I'd also say that this is not something we're holding currently, but it's something we're thinking about. I do think there's the potential for another storehold of wealth 
which is crypto. You can't have a conversation these days without talking about crypto. So specifically Bitcoin, right? Because there has been a tremendous amount of, of, of institutional adoption, um, infrastructure built around that. The challenge, of course, is that it's a technology and it's a relatively new technology. It's been around for a little over 10 years. And just as it um, has gained popularity because it has attributes that make it an attractive form, essentially, of digital gold, it could easily be displaced by a new technology in the future that might be better, a better form of digital gold. So, so I think, you know, the, the, you've got the bull case of going to like the market cap of gold, right? And, and the bear case of going to zero. <laughs> and so, but I do think that there's, there's a role for other storeholds of wealth, Bitcoin and others can be considered in that. And I think investors could consider a small slice of that as well. I don't think that Bitcoin's been running up recently because of some fears of inflation per se. I think it's more of a supply demand aspect where, you know, it's getting caught up in, in this speculation, which is driving a lot of the market outcomes in the, in the near term. And it does have, unlike some other storeholds of wealth, it does have a much more of a speculative aspect to it that actually makes it hold up less well in periods of time, like uh, March of 2020, um, you know, because you get a lot more uh, outflows in that than you do in something like gold. But, um, but I think it's interesting and it's definitely worth exploring, you know, longer term because again, I think it's, it's pretty clear that central banks are going to continue to play this game. They're going to produce more and more fiat currency to deal with their problems until there's some sort of negative repercussion. And so earning things that are, you know, storeholds of wealth, whether it's real assets that get utilized or alternative storeholds of wealth like gold or Bitcoin, I think there's an attractive case to be made there. And in the case of risk parity, the volatility of, uh, of Bitcoin is probably the most volatile component of your portfolio. And therefore, the allocation will be commensurate to that risk. You're not, you're not asking people to put in 20% like, uh, like my mom wanted me to do for her portfolio. <laughs> she would have done right. well. <laughs> no, no, no I'm, definitely, I'm definitely the loser in that scenario. Well, so I haven't, haven't answered her call in weeks. So far. You know, so, I mean, look, I don't think gold is going to go to zero uh, because it's had this role for thousands of years. But, but I think there's a real chance that Bitcoin could go to zero. You know, um, it could also be, you know, 10x what it is today. So, um, I, you know, so sizing is the key question there. Just sizing it appropriately relative to what else you're doing, I think, um, is important. Um, one of the things we've noticed as we sort of prepared um, proposals for institutional risk parity mandates is when you sort of x-ray through the risk exposures through time for many of the, the big risk parity products, there's, um, it seems like there's a, an overweight to disinflationary growth assets. Like there's, there's typically call it somewhere in the neighborhood of, of, um, you know, 60 or 70% of the risk is, or, you know, 80% of the risk. So sort of 40% of the risk budget is equity. 40% of the risk budget is, is rates. And then only 20% of the risk budget goes to that inflation basket. Um, and I, I can't help but presume that that's because sort of if you go back and examine the probability through time of experiencing an inflationary versus a, a disinflationary regime or a, um, a growth versus a, a negative growth shock type regime, then the odds have historically favored disinflationary growth assets, right? Bonds and stocks. Um, and I think we would take the position that 
while that may be true in the historical distribution, that we shouldn't expect that in the, you know, going forward, right? They sort of all are equally probable. Um, how do you guys think about, first of all, do you observe the same? And I would be curious, actually, Damien, given your experience at Bridgewater, because when I sort of do examine the risk budget um, allocation of all weather over time, it does seem like they deprioritize the inflation basket over the um, equity and, and rates allocations. So I'm just wondering, you know, have you seen that as well? And how do you guys think about that um, for, for your ETF? I actually have not seen that at, at Bridgewater because um, they have a similar framework to ours, which is having more or less equal risk to rising growth assets versus falling growth assets and rising inflation versus falling inflation assets. So in that configuration, I wouldn't perceive a, a bias there out of inflation hedge assets. Um, but but you're correct that some other risk parity providers are very explicit about that type of a, of an, a risk allocation for the reasons you mentioned. Um, and so we, we take more of a Bridgewater approach is, is from the perspective of, you know, at any point in time, there's a certain future discounted in asset prices. And we think the market's equally likely to get it, you know, wrong on either side. And so we want to be balanced to growth and inflation. And, and as you very astutely observed, maybe inflation is a greater issue in the future. Maybe it's more of a driver of relative asset class performance than growth has been. Um, you know, I, I think then in that light, it's always useful to take a step back and think in decade increments as opposed to in, in, in our recent, you know, for the past few years, because it's very easy to extrapolate what we've been living through where inflation hasn't been a concern. But if you take a step back and you look in the seventies and even in the eighties, the seventies, because you had a big run up in inflation, the eighties, because you had a big drop in inflation, the dominant driver of asset class returns was inflation volatility. Um, and so in that period, people forget this, but actually stocks and bonds had a very positive correlation. And so, um, and then since, you know, in the 2000s, you had the slowest rate of growth since the Great Depression after having phenomenally optimistic expectations coming into the 2000s, which Alex alluded to. And so that big adjustment in, in you know, very optimistic growth expectations to very pessimistic growth expectations was really good for bonds in the 2000s and terrible for stocks. And then you've kind of in some ways had the reverse happen more recently where, and so in other words, if you, if you look at it in decade increments, you've had of the four last, you know, the four past decades, um, you've, you've based, or five past decades, you've basically had, you know, inflation dominating early period and then growth dominating in the second half. Who's to say what's going to happen next? And I'd say you have to also, I think, define inflation differently than maybe we have historically because you have this tremendous potential for monetary inflation in a way that, you know, we probably have never experienced in this country. But there have been some historical examples of this in emerging markets and such. And so not to say that that's going to happen, but it's it's a possibility that you have to budget for. And so we don't think it makes sense to take a, a you know, to, to overweight one versus the other. We think they're both equally important. And um, and I think when you think about those drivers, you just want to make sure you're balanced to both, not necessarily take view on them. I think we would be um, remiss if we didn't address the what's going on currently in the fixed income markets. It's certainly been an interesting um, time to be an owner of duration. How are, how are you guys um, finding this period and, and um, how are you communicating w- this experience or about this experience with, um, with clients? I mean, I'd say what's happening is 
is not a surprise given the economic environment, right? It goes back to that economic environment again. So if you go back a year, right, interest rates collapsed, right? They almost went to zero. And, and, that's, and, and that made sense because you had the economy shutting down. And then since then, rates are up, you know, about a percent, right? And, and so, and that makes sense because the economy isn't going to zero, right? It's starting to come back. And now with the rollout of the vaccine, you know, we, and all the stimulus that's being pumped in, uh, the economy's recovering. So growth is surprising a little bit to the upside relative to where we were a year ago. And so it makes sense that rates have risen. And, and the reaction of, of various asset classes to, that, to those two environments, you know, the bear market and the bull market also makes sense. So the, the thing that's done the best most recently are commodities because you're in a rising growth, rising inflation type of uh, regime, and which can obviously quickly change. But commodities have done well, and that's the worst environment for treasuries, which has been the worst thing to help. So, so none of that is a surprise. Um, and you know, people talk about, oh, gold isn't working. Um, you know, gold was up in Q1 when commodities collapsed and stocks fell. And, and it hasn't done as well since, and that's, that's understandable. So, uh, so I don't think any of this is really a surprise. Um, and, and the way I think about it just from a, from a you know, 30,000 foot level is you have, a, you have a balanced portfolio that includes you know, pro-growth assets and falling growth assets, inflation, and so on. And, and, and some of those hedges, you can think of them that way, are treasuries and tips. When the yield is higher, the expected return of them is higher and the diversification, potential diversification benefit is, is better. So, so you can think of it as you, you have this portfolio of, of assets you know, Q1 happens and you're down 4% because the hedge has paid off. Now it's, it's the opposite, right? So, you, so you've actually you've done relatively well since the lows, but you're resetting your hedges, right? You're, you're kind of reloading the, the, the interest rates. And if you get another downturn, those hedges will probably pay off again. And so I think this is just part of the normal cycle. Um, and there's really no, uh, I'd say there's really no surprise in the way things have played out. And when you're looking at, one other thing I would add is that as these hedges or asset classes that recently paid off do poorly, it just so happens that the other side of the ledger is having returns that are outside of their normal range, offsetting many of those losses from your hedges. So it's not, again, it's there's always something that's killing it. And there's always going to be something that's killing you. But generally speaking, you expect these asset classes to have a, a upward sloping equity line over time. Just over time means something very different to, to different people, right? It could be, it could be a decade or two. Um, so, and you tighten the rate drug. So you, you have left, less left tail events, right? You have that, that left tail phenomenon happens when you decide to go 100% into a single asset class. 100% into commodities or 100% into equities. And so this idea of trying to add alpha by shifting 100% into any one of these because of, because you think you know what's going to happen over the next six months, all you're doing is exposing yourself to negative three standard deviation events. Admittedly, also positive three standard deviation events if you get it right. But as Alex alluded to earlier, is it 50 or 51%? What's your edge, right? How often do you want to make 100% bet on that 51%? So I think, you know, I, I think the framework that you guys have laid out on the best beta, best balance beta where you're not taking any bets makes total sense. But I know that you guys are also big proponents of the, um, the Bridgewater model, which is once you have your do no harm portfolio set, 
as your core, there is an ability to possibly add some excess returns through true alpha. Right? So maybe you guys can dig into that concept a little bit, and I'd be curious to see to, to learn about how you uh, how you find that alpha with confidence. Yeah, before Damon jumps in, just a quick uh, overview of that. If you think about it, when you're trying to build a diversified portfolio, you want a bunch of return streams that are reliably different from one another. So if you're looking at it within public markets, we think risk parity is, is a, an optimal framework because you can take these public markets, structure them to have similar returns and risk, you know, at least in the same ballpark, and are reliably diverse. So, so that, we think, is a very good starting point if you can think of that as the core. And then you can move outside of public markets into other market segments that, that might have a re- different return stream. But the key is, is it can't act like what you already own. So if you're going to go and buy other equities that are going to act like the equities you already own in, in risk parity, there better be a lot of alpha there for it to be differentiating. Otherwise, you're just overlapping um, and, and you're not producing uh, you know, that reliable diversification. Um, so I'll let Damon jump in a little bit deeper from that starting point. Yeah, I, I would, I would though say on, on that point that it's most common for us to hold risk parity alongside equity allocations for clients because going all the way to risk parity is just not something that I think most investors are going to be comfortable with for the reasons we discussed earlier. So it's about finding, you know, where, where is appropriate on the spectrum for each client that they're likely to hold through whatever we experience. Like this year is a great case in point, you know, risk parity has lagged. Um, and at the same time that you've had equities do quite well. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's important that you have things in the portfolio where the clients can point to that and say, I, I am participating in what my neighbor's doing. You know, you can't ignore those types of things. And, um, and there's also, you know, frankly, you have to admit that there's a chance we're wrong, you know? And so there's, it's, there are other approaches out there that have a lot of thoughtfulness behind them too. And so I think diversification should apply to that approach as well. You know, you can't be overly rigid with any one approach. Um, and, uh, and so I, I would say that typically that's, you know, we have a collection of, you know, typically equity and risk parity um, and so a little bit of fixed income on the traditional side, on the public market side. And then we would... You have a FOMO meter for your clients? Th- there's an aspect of that, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. And I, I define our goal as ensuring the best outcome for the client. If you're broader in your definition of that, the best outcome is one that they can actually achieve. If you put them into something that they're not as comfortable with, they're likely to sell at the absolute worst time and then go to the thing that just did well. So they're going to get the worst of both of the approaches as opposed to being in something that they understand and feel comfortable with and can stay the course with. That's the most important thing, whether it's 60-40 or, or, or something more akin to risk parity. You need to stay the course. You know that, that that's the biggest dest- destroyer of value in client portfolios, investor portfolios, is changing your mind at the worst time, right? So, um, so that's so that's just one thing that I, I think is important to realize. And I think I think in that light, our uh, risk parity actually is a valuable way to incorporate those diversifiers into client portfolios in a way that they're more likely to hold on to, as we talked about earlier. Um, as opposed to having the, you know, you'd say optimally you would just hold the things that are, you know, it would be risk parity X equities. But again, that's a really hard thing for most people to hold on to. Um, but then beyond math and art, what's that? 
That's when math and art meet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So, that, so beyond that, you're absolutely right that, that you can incorporate high quality returns that come from manager skill, you refer to as, as true alpha. And that could be in the public markets or it could be in the private markets. And there are a lot of ways to generate compelling returns through manager skill. It could be through, you know, we, we recently made an allocation to um, early stage, you know, venture and growth equity managers. So if you believe that the managers you're hiring have an edge in, in identifying innovation that is likely to change the way we consume or do business or interact with one another, there's potentially return from that. Uh, and so, you know, we're trying to generate alpha in that way. We're trying to generate alpha by hiring very experienced real estate operators, guys that know how to manage an apartment building, which sounds boring, but I'm telling you, it's real alpha that's actually quite a bit easier to underwrite than a stock picker. You can see when a property's managed well, you know, the way that they, you know, are, are collecting fees and, and not running with too much staff and, um, thinking about the, the leasing efforts and all these things go into, uh, operational alpha, which, which we can underwrite in the private markets. Um, so we actually, what we do is we think about it in terms of, um, two categories. So there's one is, uh, largely in the hedge fund category. Uh, where we think the most skilled active managers tend to um, participate because they, frankly, the rewards are better if you're successful within hedge funds. And they have the opportunity to structure portfolios that are less directional uh, with regards to the market. So they will be more hedged. And in fact, we tend to favor managers that tend to be more hedged and less directional because then we can more easily determine whether it's alpha versus just market tailwinds or being in the right sector. And so it could be literally market neutral, meaning they have equal longs and shorts, or it could be that they over time are market neutral, like a Bridgewater, where they don't have any bias to be long or short any one given market, but that at points in time, they'll have a directional view on where interest rates are going or where the stock market is going. And so we've spent a lot of time trying to identify the handful of managers we believe can consistently outperform, whether it's through some sort of quantitative edge or whether it's through um, just... Uh, you know, experience and understanding of the global linkages between economies and markets, or it could be just something much more nitty gritty, like being able to work through distress situations and advocate on behalf of your shareholders or go into activist situations. There's, there are countless ways to make money out there. And what we're trying to do is fold in as many different paths to generating a skill based return as we can. Um, when we become confident in that manager skill set. And so that's an ongoing effort. You know, we have a handful of managers we allocate today, uh, we allocate to today, and we continue to look for that. It's like uncovering gems out there, but it it is challenging and you never get the past returns. You only get the future returns. So I'd say there are filters we use from a quantitative perspective to say whether or not they've generated alpha historically, but that's just the ticket to get into the, to the park. Then you've got to, then you've got to figure out who is likely to do it going forward. And that's much more of a qualitative exercise. And we often takes years to get to know managers and assess whether or not they really have an edge. You know, are they thinking about risk in a holistic way? Um, do they have the right values in terms of closing their strategies, being their own largest investors? There's a number of things that go into that assessment. Uh, and then I'd say on the private market side, that's a continual effort of ours to source really high quality privates. And that spans a spectrum from things that are really off the run, like uh, healthcare royalties or life settlements, um, all the way to things that are more familiar, like private equity. I mentioned growth equity. That's a popular area. 
But I do think that there is a premium for those managers that can identify and, and, and access that innovation. Um, and, and private real estate is a big, big area of focus for us as well. So it spans a spectrum. There's, there, that's a longer conversation. But I do think all of those things are very complementary to getting the right asset allocation on the public market side. Yeah, and the, and the one quick uh, comment on, from a high level is our sense is that public markets are becoming more and more efficient. So if you go back 50 years relative to where we are, where we are today, there are just more and more participants in that space. You know, information is widely available. So it's more and more efficient, which makes alpha opportunities more and more challenging, which is one of the reasons why efficiency is so important. So tax efficiency, cost efficiency, uh, capital efficiency, being really well balanced, you know, getting getting the rebalancing benefit. So that is what, what why we created the ETF because we think that's a very efficient way to get that exposure. And then you spend most of your time trying to identify alpha in less efficient spaces like private markets, uh, some of the things that the hedge funds do where they can buy things that are more esoteric. Um, and that I think is a very good way to to get balanced, you know, market exposure plus alpha. And you put all that together. And you can build an extremely diversified portfolio that can actually do well in a period of you know low cash rates. So that's that's the kind of the big picture. Do you guys typically like to um, put those more idiosyncratic, um, you know, the privates, the, the you know, direct real estate investments, the um, life settlement type? Investments. Do you type to, do you like to wrap those in in a fund together, or do you typically have those on client statements as as individual line items? So any preferences there or trends? Well, and uh, it depends on the opportunity. So sometimes we'll do feeders. They could be single manager feeders or multi manager feeders. Uh, for instance, within growth equity, we're we're doing a multi manager feeder. Uh, last year, when there was the big dislocation associated with COVID, we did a multi-manager feeder with different distressed credit managers because we, we wanted diversification in those segments. And then at other times, we might get great access to a multi-family manager, and we might want to just have a dedicated single-manager feeder there. Uh, so it really depends on the opportunity. Also, there's a sizing constraint. So we don't want to do a feeder unless it's a meaningful size. Otherwise, there are incremental costs that come from that. So sometimes we'll just do direct investments with the managers as well and, and just have, you know, those individual line items being held in client portfolios. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we're trying to get the return stream for our clients. And the second decision is what's the most efficient way to get that? Sometimes when you do a feeder, you get, you get cost efficiencies because you go in with a $100 million check as opposed to a bunch of smaller you know, investments. So you yeah, we can usually get, you can usually get preferential terms, you know, whether that's lower fees or better governance. Um, better access, you know, co-investments, those types of things. So uh, one of the things I wanted to point out was that in terms of most investing, most investors are constructing their portfolios according to expected returns. But when it, when it comes to constructing a portfolio using uh, a risk parity guideline, you're actually constructing the portfolio according to risk. That's right. Yes, you're, you kind of have an expected risk, but that also is associated to an expected return because there, there's a, 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 you know, a rough estimate of what return you should get for every unit of risk that you're taking. Okay. And yeah, thanks for clarifying that. So what are some, just if we have time, what are, what are some of the biggest risks that you're thinking about right now? That's, 
that's what we spend most of our time thinking about. You know, it's because it's such an unusual environment. Um, you have to think about, you almost have to think about the things that nobody's thinking about. So, you know, a year ago, we weren't thinking about a global pandemic, but it happened. But I think you have to consider things like, you know, what happens if the U.S. loses its, its world reserve currency status? Uh, what happens if inflation really takes off and, and, it's, and it can't be controlled? What happens if we, you know, the Fed is trying to create inflation with all the tools in its toolkit, but what if it's not successful? Japan's been trying to do it for a couple of decades. Europe's been trying for a decade without success. Maybe the deflationary pressures or these secular forces are so significant that printing trillions of dollars isn't enough. Um, and so what happens in that environment? And, you know, if you, if you just think about the, these forces, they're so significant, now, not just in terms of the, the headlines, but the, in terms of the magnitude, printing trillions and trillions, interest rates near zero for a decade, um, the deflationary forces, um, you could end with significant deflation and you need things that do well in that environment, which is very different from the things that do well in a, in a strong inflationary period. Um, and, and so we think about all those tail risks um, and, and we're constantly thinking of new ones, unfortunately. Um, and you just want to own things that protect you because you just like, the key to all of this is just don't get wiped out. And I think that's a, that's a risk most people underestimate until it happens. And then it's too late. Um, and, and I mean, as fiduciaries, you know, that's that's what we are. Uh, our main job is to protect clients. You know, the secondary grow your capital, but the way you grow it over the long run is just don't take a huge hit. And I think that has to be, you know, the primary focus all the time. Since our job is to help our clients manage their wealth, I worry about the inevitable wealth confiscation that's going to happen. There is, it's unsustainable for a society to exist with these types of wealth extremes, which have only been exacerbated by COVID and by the monetary policy of the last decade. So the owners of assets, the owners of businesses of real estate are getting wealthier and wealthier. And the average person, I don't think, feels that their circumstances are improving in the same way. And so that will lead to more and more extreme political outcomes. And it's your, you know, your guess is as good as mine as to what that looks like in practice. But I think that that is going to be a very challenging environment generally to help us take care of our client wealth, which is why we think about some of these extreme outcomes. Um, but certainly I would think about things like higher taxes, um, potentially higher rates of inflation, which is another form of wealth redistribution. Um, and you know, all the way to things like a, a real problem with the currency. Uh, and so it speaks again to a, a framework like risk parity, which I think is much more robust through a range of those types of outcomes uh, versus something that's more conventionally allocated, which by the way, on the 60, 40, if you look at most of those portfolios, they're predominantly U.S. equities because they've done the best recently. And I think, you know, I, I think those are, you know, that's just susceptible to a, a big change in the environment. Thanks, Damien. That, that's, uh, that's very enlightening, actually. That's the first time anyone's put it quite that way. There's been a lot of talk of inequality uh, this last year, but I don't think it's, uh, that's the first time, at least I'm speaking for myself, that's the first time I've heard about it put that way in terms of wealth confiscation. So, yeah, I mean, it's happened for thousands of years, right? There's the day of Jubilee in the Bible. You know, it's like you forgive the debts and there's just a, you know, a redistribution of wealth. And I think there are di different ways it can happen. There are orderly ways, there are disorderly ways, but I think it's unquestionable that there's going to be some sort of redistribution of wealth.
Yeah. You know, my, my, uh, uh, speaking of which, my godson, uh, was in his economics class online the other day and, uh, the teacher put a question forward, which was, do you agree with the sort of, the question was sort of exist, existential question. Do you agree that, that there should be billionaires? Just 25 out of 27 of his classmates, except him, um, said no. Yeah, you know. So, so. <laughs> but I just thought I, I just thought that was such a reflection on you know on the the mindset that's happening that's occurring uh, you know in these times that that there's there's a feeling that people that there shouldn't be that kind of concentration of wealth in such a small number of people and and I thought you know this is the future these are seventeen year olds. Who, who are thinking this way, what are they going to do with that thought when they, you know, when they get into their twenties and thirties, are they, are they going to be activists? Are they going to be, are they going to hang on to that, that, that mindset and, and take that forward with them and do something with it. And, and that, that actually ties into what you just said, which was why I sort of lit up when you said it, that thank you. <laughs> if you had the same 30 years ago, you would have probably got the opposite. Exactly. <laughs> it shows you which way the trends go. So, gentlemen, we've, we've come. It's been a really uh, thank you very much. It's been a really, really great discussion. We've come to uh, towards the end. It's time for one more question. Um, would you rather? And the question is, would you rather spend a week in the past or a week in the future? And then you come back to the present. Yeah, just call it a vacation in somewhere in time. Either uh, you you have a choice of spending a week in the future or a week in the past. I'm reminded of Back to the Future Part Two, where he goes ahead and he gets that sports almanac, and then he's able to come back and. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think that's there's an easy if you're able to go to the future <laughs> and then come back to the present. There's some there's some opportunities there that you I don't like get from going in the other direction. In your answer. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I, to me, I think if you get a glimpse of what the future holds, even if it's just a second, I think it's just it, it, it at least will set you on hopefully yeah. closer to the right path than the wrong one. Um, I mean, the past you can read about. I guess if you go back a couple thousand years, you can't read in detail. But the past you can read about. You can't really read about the. Future. I don't know. I don't know that I would survive in two thousand years ago. I don't have that. Skill. <laughs> <laughs> Internet, <laughs> um, I, I tend to be an optimist, so I, I, I look forward to what's to come, you know, and, and, and it is exciting. I mean, it, obviously, there are things to be worried about. Yeah, that's our job to be worried about things. But I also think that humanity is progressing and um, and we have this incredible ability to course correct, you know, when you get extremes in either way, in either side. Um, you know, the fact that young people care about the environment. So, you know, like they care about these things. Um, it's really extraordinary, right? And so that's the only way you're going to make changes is is for people to collectively decide that these things are important and you're going to value them. And and I think, you know, normally you think of it being very difficult to make decisions. You know, normally people decide on what's best for them in the near term, like right in front of them, you know. And now you're seeing people decide on what's best for their kids and their grandchildren 
And that's encouraging to me, you know? So I, I would love to spend a week in the future. All right. That's great. Well, Damien, Alex, thank you so much. It's, it's uh, as I said before, it's been a terrific conversation. I think uh, you've shared a lot of food for thought. Uh, we, we hope to uh, do this again with you very soon. That'd be great. We'd love that. Thanks, Thanks gentlemen. Thanks, guys. 